Yeehaw, hello and howdy. Thank you for joining us on the Canon Stats Podcast, the increasingly weekly Arsenal Analytics Podcast. Uh, today's show, we will look ahead to Arsenal's trip to Anfield, looking at how this season compares to Arsenal's team's historical performances, and maybe we'll touch on some of the other news that's kind of been going on around the league. I am Scott Willis, and always I am joined by my co-host, Adam Bogey. Welcome, Adam. How you doing? Hey, what's up, Scott? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I feel like after the past couple of weeks, this was such a short turnaround between games and I'm, I'm fired up for the weekend. Yeah, it'll be, it's a big weekend. Big, big weekend. On the scale of one to 10, where are your nerves for this trip to Anfield? <clears throat> oh, I mean, they're high. They're, uh, you know, it's like a 9.9. It's a 9.8. It's, it's high. And it's, it's less because, less because of like any doubt in terms of the ability of the team to actually win the game and more just because of the magnitude of it. Mm-hmm. You know, every chance, every legitimate chance Arsenal have from this point on to drop points, the build up to the game is just going to feel like just so torturous. And it's not, it's not as if we couldn't drop points, you know, like at West Ham or something like that, but it's just not going to be, it's not going to feel like such a big, scary week leading up to that as it as it will to, you know, the Etihad and, and Anfield and things like that. St. James Park. Yeah, right. Like it's, it's like I think we all had a little bit of nerves last week going to Leeds. But I think the, the difference between going into this match and the Leeds is significantly different. Right. I think we were more worried about overlooking the Leeds match, yeah. you know, focusing on this one coming up um just the the history and the weight of our like we haven't won we just haven't won liverpool in a long time let alone at anfield so it's just like basically all of our trips there have just been right miserable like the last few years for a decade yeah yeah for, <laughs> yeah the last for yeah, a last literal win. decade it has been it has been it was like the, the first year of Klopp. i think was the last one as 2012 is the season yeah vito minoni was the goalie you know, that tells you everything you need to know. It was just, Mikel Arteta was like in this, uh, he actually played the full 90. So <laughs> now he's the manager. That's how long it's been. And it's not, it's not only been a long time, especially the last handful have just been absolutely, absolutely like embarrassing. Uh, there was, there was that like bright moment pre Arteta Klopp, dust up last season where we're like, hey, Arte-, you know, like Arsenal might actually uh, give Liverpool a game in this. And then just like, what was it? Sadio Mane right before the half scored and then just like the wheels fell off. Just a nightmare. Yeah, yeah I think I have a, a memory of what is it, Ainsley Mitten Niles getting a goal and I was like, all right, maybe something could happen. And then I think that game ended 5-1. I think that was that one. Um, yeah, I was looking here like over the last five seasons, Arsenal have been outscored 19-3 to with the expected goals 16-4. to so it's just the games have not been close. There hasn't been yeah. a single goal margin. I mean, I think we've had some of the EFL Cups and those kinds of <laughs> things, and like th- those don't really count for me. Right. It's all the the ones in the league, and like just, the one that went to pens, but it was all backups. Yeah. 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 No, it's it hasn't been. I mean, and and it's. I mean, to be fair, it's been pretty reflective, with the exception of last season. I would say it's been pretty reflective of like which which part of the atmosphere each club has been in. I think last year, Liverpool were a little bit like on their way down because of injuries and everything. And Arsenal were on their way up. Um, but we, you know, at Anfield, we, we still started, Nuno, 
Uh, we still started Tomiyasu on the actually no Tomiyasu was a regular starter last season. He was just terrible in that game though. Uh, we started the dynamic duo of Alba and Laka uh, up top, and you know Sambi was next to party in the midfield. So we weren't exactly like full strength in that one. Mm-hmm. So going to the lineup, what what is your expectation for how we're going to line up? Do you see Trissard going to the bench, or do you think he can you know holds his spot? Well, it's a, it's it's a more interesting question than it should be because. I think I think if if Trossard didn't torch Liverpool at Anfield literally this season, I would think it'd be pretty easy. Uh, Martinelli, Jesus, Saka up front, and uh, Trossard. The the thing I love about having him on the bench in a situation like this, even if Eddie is is there too, which you know maybe maybe he will, maybe he won't, but is that he can he can be that sub for any of those three guys and you can reshuffle and that's not to say you couldn't do that if you were bringing Jesus or Martinelli off the bench but I just think I think that given what we've seen from Liverpool uh, in the last few games I think it's just going to be really important to put a ton of pressure on their back line and and for me not that Trossard is bad at that but for me the best two guys we have at that are Martinelli and Jesus the only two guys you could take out for Trossard? So that kind of answers the question for me. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. I think it's going to be, you got to start with uh, the main three, the Martinelli, Jesus, Saka. And then I think it's one of those guys, you know, for Trossard at, you know, maybe 60 minutes or so, depending on the game state. You know, maybe yeah. it's, you, you kind of bring in, you know, have all four of them on the field if things are, you know, really in need of it. But I think that is generally the team that has gotten us here. And I think that in a big game like that, that's the one that you're mm-hmm. going to stick with. Do you make any other changes to the to the, the team behind there? Because I don't think there really is uh, an obvious change that I think you would make, right? I think it is the who between those four guys for the front yeah. three spots. I think, I think that's the only question in terms of like qualities. You know, we at, at the first meeting with Liverpool, obviously Tomiyasu started on the left on the left side. Uh, Zinchenko was, I think Zinchenko was just straight up injured for that game. And we were expecting uh, Tierney and and we ended up going with Tomiyasu and he did great against Salah, uh, Mohamed Salah. But I just, uh, obviously Tomiyasu's hurt. Um, we already have enough problems on the back line. Don't really see anybody, you know, shifting out of the midfield. That's pretty locked in stone at this point. So yeah, the only, the only question is who the mysterious injured guy who might be fit for tomorrow or for Sunday is whether it's Eddie and Kedia, which, you know, my like pessimistic side says is probably the right answer <laughs> or whether it's Saliba. But um, if, if Saliba's good to go, I mean, throw him out there. Yeah, I think that would be, I mean, I think that's what everybody's hoping for. Um, but yeah, Mikel Arteta is playing it very close to the chest and not going to give anything away just to, you know, keep those, you know, things mm-hmm. kind of guessing. But I think everybody, I think, I'd say that it is probably Saliba and I think he comes back for this. I think they've been targeting this as the thing that they'd like to have him ready for. And, you know, given that this is the the five sub world, I think that's okay to take that risk here, right? It's not like back in the day when you only had the three subs and, you know, you don't want to necessarily burn one if a guy has to come off in the first 15 minutes where things aren't working here, right? You know, if that happens again, you know, you still have, you know, four sub opportunities after that, or, you know, you know, four subs and, you know, two additional, you know, opportunities plus halftime to be able to make a change. Yeah. And, and, you know, Saliba, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to 
put him in a situation where he is going to risk long-term damage to his injury. But I think, I think part of the, like the calculus for the training team will be, is that actually possible or can he just aggravate it to the point where he's done for the rest of the season? And I think if, if the answer was, Hey, this guy can do long-term damage to his back by playing, I think they just would have shut him down. I really do. Yeah, I think because so. he's he's twenty, he's still twenty one, right? I mean, we're gonna fingers crossed, touch wood. Like he's a ten year center back for Arsenal. They're not as much as we'd love to get the title this season. I don't think they're gonna risk all of that. So you know, it, it is kind of a stress test, but he's got to be able to pass it because otherwise, there's really not too much of a point of keeping him around. Um, not just giving him if he does need surgery or anything, any other kind of treatment that would make him unable to train. You know, Manchester City, 17 days after this one. And then I think Newcastle is a week and a half after that. So those are the, the big ones that they're targeting for him. And uh, he's got to be able to at least play at some point. So, yeah, let's switch gears and kind of talk a little bit about Liverpool. I, I find them fascinating because they feel like two completely kind of separate teams where on some occasions they yeah. can look back to as good as the team that almost won the quadruple last year. And then at other times they look like an absolute mess that is kind of like kind of where they deserve, right? It's a, a, a talented, but flawed team. And I think their current position kind of reflects that. So I don't know, like, do you have any major thoughts on, you know, how they've gotten here? Like, I don't know. I find it just fascinating. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean it's a combination of things for me. Um they've they've obviously lost a couple of key players for almost the entire season at this point in Tiago and Luis Diaz. Um mm-hmm. those guys have been out like a huge chunk of the season. And you know, Klopp is playing it less close to the vest with those two. It sounds like Diaz will not be factoring in at all uh this weekend, but uh Tiago could. So we'll keep an eye out for that you know, because the midfield has been a huge problem for them, partially because they've missed him. They tried to loan Arthur from Juventus and he's been injured for basically the whole season as well. So, you know, they've got that element of it, but as we've, you know, you and I have both commentated a lot on this, they're just putrid away from Anfield. Um, And I I think, so I think that they're actually, it's, it's kind of a really interesting uh, situation for them because I watch them, you know, I watched the game against Manchester city. I watched the game against Real Madrid. I watched most of the game against Manchester United. I watched the game against Chelsea there. I think that there are a few things going on. I, I mm-hmm. do think that father time is, uh, is not their friend right now. You know, somebody like Fabinho, he's actually not even that old. I think he's maybe 30 or 31, yeah, but he right really just does not seem to physically. Yeah. Or 29 even. Wow. he just seems like he kind of just seems like he does not have the gear that he's had in previous seasons, just not covering ground, not making plays like, like he has in the past. And I think when you're, when you're running with a four, three, three, like if that's, if you lose that much steam out of your six, particularly when you got to play like Jordan Henderson and Harvey Elliott in the midfield with him a lot of the time, I mean, that's just huge. Uh, the other thing is, you know, like, I mean, watching them against Chelsea, watching them against Manchester City, I just, it seems like mentally the back four is just like, I don't know, gone. Virgil van Dyke has not, not, it's not like he's been like putrid or anything, but he is not like the Virgil van Dyke we've seen this season. So 
you know, I think there's something maybe psychological to this uh, where they, you know, the belief isn't quite there. And then they get in front of the home, the home, you know, the very friendly fans of Anfield. And, uh, you know, maybe you start to believe a little bit, you start to feel a little bit more. And that's how you can pull off, you know, 7-0 against Manchester United. Not that they're like this amazing side, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, they're more difficult to beat than Chelsea, for example. Yeah, I've got a theory and I'm going to, you know, bounce it off you here. So just to kind of think of it as I think a lot of their problems in midfield and defense actually starts with the attack. So losing Sadio Mane and having to, you know, go away from Roberto Firmino as the main, you know, number nine, I think that has had a massive Mm -hmm. effect in their ability to press and really just kind of harry teams from the front. So, you know, Darwin yeah. Nunez is a good player, like, but he's not nearly the same level of, you know, a pressing agent that you would get from Sadio Mane. When he's the number nine, like, he does not do the similar kinds of things that Firmino does. Because I think that was something that Firmino was really kind of underrated in. And it's, you know, similar to what Jesus is able to do for Arsenal is really kind of coordinate and pick the spots to lead the press and really kind of set the tone for the team doing a lot of the dirty work. And I think that's something that they really miss from them. And then you kind of think the the knock-on effects there is now the the midfield has more, rather than just being you know, cleanup duty or you know stopping teams if they beat the press, it's now like they're having to sit more of that mid-block, covering more of the space. There's more, you know, more miles on all of the legs of the midfielders and more space to cover, and it's just no longer that same kind of you know team where they're able to just pin teams yeah. back into the final third. It's a really interesting kind of thought. So I, does that seem outlandish, or do you think that there's actual kind of truth to that? No, no, I think, I think that's a good observation, because if you watch back like the clips of the game, the 4-0 at An- Anfield last season, I mean, a lot of it is... Arsenal getting completely smothered. Um, mm-hmm. We try to build out of the back. So I I would have told you this before they bought him, and and I would tell you it now that Cody Yakpo, I, I just don't – I while I do appreciate the player and I like him, I think he's a good player, I don't think he's going to build up a Premier League career on the basis of his being a great off-ball player, a really, like, you know, tenacious presser, that sort of thing. I think Darwin's got a little bit better engine, but – it's it's the same. It's not it's not what Firmino is going to give you. It's not you know Mane at his peak or anything like that. So yeah, I think that's a good point. And and I don't actually feel um, particularly after watching them uh, the last couple times in the league, I do not feel a ton of fear of getting that same smothering treatment. And I think you know I mean we talk about it from Liverpool side, but Arsenal side too. I mean we've. At times we've struggled with getting, uh, you know, against the sides that have, have pressured us a lot, like Southampton and Leeds in the first meeting. But then there are other times when we really seem to like, that's when we get some of our best flowing play. So it's, I think we've come a long way playing out of that. Yeah, right. I feel like it, it kind of goes to Arsenal's advantage if Liverpool do come to play against us to be able to have those opportunities with our very technical players to try to create more space for us to be able to attack. I think that was, you know, some of the things that we were able to do in the first meeting with them is really kind of take advantage of 
more space and get both Saka and Martinelli one-on-one isolated against the fullbacks. And I think that's something that teams have tried to limit Arsenal from doing, you know, more and more, right? You see it, you know, two and three guys. Sometimes, you know, you think back to the fourth goal against Leeds and there was like five guys that were all keyed in on Saka. And like, that has been like the, the thing yeah, now. They were all like, <laughs> Where, yeah, like now it's like, if, if both of those guys are going to be able to go up against the fullbacks, um, I feel like that's the situation that really kind of leads to Arsenal's favor. And I, I really do hope that, you know, that is kind of what we see from Liverpool. Yeah, like, yes, it's going to be a little bit scary at times because, you know, anytime <laughs> there's a team pressing you and you're playing up in the back, it can be a little bit scary, especially a team with the reputation of Liverpool. But I think that is something that actually favors mm-hmm. Arsenal if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think we'll do what we can if hypothetically we see Rob Holding's name on the team sheet Sunday morning I, or, you know, Sunday afternoon for those of you overseas. I think uh, I think we'll do what we can to encourage Rob to receive and pass uh, and not take not dawdle too much on the ball because you know I think I think if if there was a if there was a moment in my hypothetical game that I play out in my mind that could like embolden Liverpool it would be something like that allowing allowing a turnover at the back actually I think they went up one one nil on City because of a turnover at the back. So I would, you know, just do what you can to move the ball quickly. Even if, even if Rob has to try for a long, long ball, just to avoid the mistake, that's just what it's going to have to be. But once you, the great thing about it is once you give them the ball, the likes of, you know, Virgil van Dijk, Joe Gomez, Joel Matip, Konate, who I have not been especially impressed with when I've seen him this season. um, Just, you know, I like, I really like that matchup for, for Gabriel Jesus. And he's, if, if you have not followed him a lot before this season, like this dude has loved a game against Liverpool in his career. So uh, <laughs> that makes me excited. We, we haven't gotten to see him at Anfield yet. So I'm, I'm excited to see him, see what he can do, especially after getting two goals and like the game immediately preceding it. Yeah. I, I think that Jesus has to be in the lineup here. So I think we we're kind of come to an agreement on what we expect the team. So we, we expect the, the front three to be Martinelli, Jesus, Saka, you know, with Xhaka, Odegaard behind, Partey uh, anchoring the midfield, Zinchenko, Gabriel, and then, you know, if Saliba's healthy, he's there, Ben White, and then Ramsdale in goal. I mean, I think that's the first 11 if we have one, and I think it's going to be that. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty confident that that team can do it. Yeah. Yeah, and I've – somebody asked me about this, like, not even not even in this week's buildup – um, but it was one of those things like a few weeks ago, looking ahead to Liverpool. And I think maybe it was while they were playing against Real Madrid or something. So we, we had Liverpool on the mind. And and I said it I said it back then. And I, I really feel strongly that this team can win at Anfield. This this team is good enough to be the team to break that streak. I think it's it's just going to come down to the tone early. Uh, if if Arsenal come out and look like we did early against Leeds, I think that's a problem. But we've seen them in a number of games this season come out and look like ready to go for the throat off the kickoff. And I think that is going to be just really important to uh, not allow Liverpool to settle in too much and not give the, the home crowd too much of a reason to like get really fired up for the you know most of the first half. Like If they're going to have chances in the first half 
it needs to be in the back, the back stretch of it. It's Arsenal need to dominate the ball. They need to take the, like, just take the wind out of the stadium and get some chances really, really fast in my opinion. Yeah, I think that is the the key, right? I think even if it has to be just, all right, we're going to have some possession. We're going to try to force them, you know, back a bit um, and then really kind of play like a methodical style. I don't know if I necessarily want to see, you know, Arsenal come out, you know, all guns blazing, crazy rock and roll press. Um, I think I'd rather it be a, a bit of let's just get our foot on the ball and kind of pass it around, you know, kind of smother them, mm-hmm. kind of like do the Python style of we're just going to squeeze the space and then try to get you in there rather than making it like a, a basketball I back and forth. Oh, yeah. I would I would love not to get into a really open game with them, however possible. I do think I do think that out wide we're set up really well, I think, to succeed in those, uh, you know, Zinchenko not necessarily being the greatest one on one defender to throw out there against one of the better players in Premier League history. But, you know, obviously he's got Gabriel right behind him. Ben White, I think, is going to be more than fine against Gak, kind of the Gakpo Nunez combination because they both are kind of the left wing and they're both kind of the number nine. And, and I really trust him to defend that really well. I don't think that they've got the traits that Ben White struggles against. So, so I feel good about that. And obviously, I mean, how can you not feel good about the the opposite end of the pitch, Saka and Martinelli against Trent Alexander Arnold and and Andy Robertson? Martinelli, even before his like huge, like, Hey, this kid, this guy might actually be like a superstar now type of season. Absolutely has tortured Trent when he's gotten him. Trent does not look good against Martinelli. He just does not. Uh, so I, I would love to see a lot of the ball up the left, getting him into some one-on-one situations. I, I would relish that opportunity. I'm sure, I'm sure Martinelli does too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So kind of looking here at how this game potential, like the leverage of it. So a draw here is probably a decent result, but a win would be really big. I know there's a bit of a you know debate like, oh, is should we be okay with a draw here? You know, doing those kinds of things. I don't know. Would you be okay with a draw? Um, just avoiding losing? I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my play style to encourage it if that's where we ended up that would be fine it's you know obviously games in hand and and everything but the hypothetical of arsenal drawing and city winning still has would still have arsenal up six with city having a game in hand so it's not the end of the world it would definitely be better than a loss but i mean when you're in this situation when you're going for a title uh you know wins are worth three draws Mm -hmm. are worth one wins are a lot better, right? Draws are closer to a loss than a win. So it's, would I be okay with it? Yeah, I mean, sure, it would be encouraging. It would be the best result we've had at Anfield for years. But like, if I'm if I'm Arteta and the, the coaching staff, like I'm going there to win. I'm not going there for a draw. Yeah, no, and I think that that kind of matches, right? I think I would rather, if, if we're tied with, you know, 75 minutes to go, I would rather see Arsenal make a move to go to win it even if it increases the chance of a loss, because yeah, those three points would make a huge difference. Yeah. So um, I've got Arsenal with defending one and a half expected points here. And basically the the model says that Arsenal will have about a, a one point, a little bit over one point gap over um, Manchester City right now. So if we're able to pick up a point and a half, that almost makes it three points expected at the end of the season. 
uh, where a draw really doesn't mm -hmm. help things. It really kind of holds serve. You kind of, you know, you knock out, that's one less match that you could really slip up in. But a win just adds so much more, right? <laughs> so if we're about 50-50 right now, a win might move us closer to 65-70 um, at this kind of a situation. So, yeah, it's just so big, pivotal moment yeah. here. People, some people absolutely hate when you talk about <laughs> the it, games it like <laughs> in, in this expected points framework, Scott. But, but I think that it's, it's helpful when you think about it in terms of the projections to say an Arsenal draw here would not be as damaging as, say, a draw against a different opponent or at least not in terms of the simulation. True, right? Yeah, you think about... It wouldn't be all that. Like, like that's closer to expected, according to your model. Yeah, it, it would be, right? So it would be, you know, you think about if Arsenal were about 50-50 right now, if we draw this match, so yeah, we lose a little bit in the expected points, but there's one less match to, you know, for City to make up points on. So it's not really a massive change, I think. I think we might lose a little bit and drop closer to 50-50 because I think I have us almost 60% right now. But a win here right. really, really helps. I, I don't know. I, I'm not expecting Southampton to give Arsenal any help. Should I don't think that you are either, right? <laughs> well, I mean, we will we will all be Saints on Saturday, but yeah, it's not it's not looking good. I think that you know I've spent so much of the season expecting Southampton to to play better. I just you know for whatever maybe it's the Ralph effect. Like I just. I expect more from that club. Um, and then you put them in a game, you know, like at West Ham and I don't know. They're just, I don't, I don't know. Like if James Ward Prowse does not score a free kick, I just don't know if they can get points. Yeah. That's the thing is like, Sad. they're just, their attack. Is so just, no, I'm not expecting so, so bad. It, yeah. They just cannot generate anything outside of him. Um, the defense has been, I mean, not great. I mean, that's why they're in the relegation zone, but like that isn't really necessarily the problem. It is that they just cannot get anything going in attack. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they had less than five shots against Manchester City. Um, I just don't expect them to be able to do yeah. anything. So like, I think our best hope is like a, a nil-nil um, or something like that, or, you know, maybe a 1-1 with, you know, James Ward-Prowse, you know, getting some sort of a free kick magic going. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm just not like, if, if two hours after that game, people aren't going nuts on Twitter and celebrating some kind of weird result like it's not it's not going to wreck my weekend it's just not what i'm expecting in terms of like our our rivals dropping points obviously we're all in on the title race but like i they're not the ones that i'm hoping for like i'm looking at brighton tottenham and i'm <laughs> brentford newcastle like those those ones maybe can give us some little like schadenfreude type of uh glee but i, I don't expect it anywhere else yeah so let's let's switch gears and kind of put the season into context because I mean, it's really easy to kind of get, you know, lost in the weeds of the, you know, the game to game stuff. But this has been a very special season. Um, I know you wrote a, a really great post kind yeah. of putting that into context. So if anybody hasn't read it, um, I will definitely link mm -hmm. it in the notes here. But yeah, Adam, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a rundown of, of what we've seen this season and what we uh, what what makes it so great? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, after after Leeds, you know, very demonstrative 4-1 win, I just was thinking about, and I was thinking about this a little bit coming out of the international break too with 
I think at that point it would have been 10 games left to be in this position, right. To be five points clear to have matched or, or surpassed all these like best start records, um, all that sort of thing. Like I was just, I was just really like thinking about, you know, if we get to like May 25th or something and, and we have not won the title of if city passed us up because we lost at the Eddie hot or something like that, everybody's probably going to feel pretty bummed out about that. And, and, and like, it'll be hard at that point to think about the season in a really positive lens. So I just, I just kind of like was thinking about it that way and, and wanted to kind of like contextualize it a little bit. I'm, you know, we could win two thirds of the games from the rest of the, from the rest of the point out, like lose three more and still match the invincibles point total. Like it just feels absolutely crazy. And like the, the current pace in terms of points per game would actually break the invincible, like our premier league, uh, record for points, which is currently 90. So mm-hmm. we'd end up on 94 if we could keep our points per game. Even like just completely losing it, falling apart, um, and only winning like a couple more games, maybe pick up a couple of draws. Like we would, if we hit 80 points, I think 72 right now, right? So 80 points, like this would be the first time in 15 years that Arsenal have had, had 80 points. And we're already almost there after 29 games. So the goal differential, the goal differential right now is plus 43. If we ended the season here, it would be second. That would be third for the Premier League era for Arsenal, behind only the Invincibles in the season after the 0405 team. Even if we just scored one goal every game the rest of the season, that would be our most uh, goals scored since 2010. I mean, 2010 doesn't sound that long ago, but it, it's actually 13 years ago now, which makes me feel old. Just like some of these things, it's crazy to think it's been 15 years. If we, if we, kept going at our current rate in terms of goal differential, it would be the new record for the club. Um, actually, no, it wouldn't. Sorry. It'd be, it'd be our best in 32 years. Uh, the ninety ninety one season, we were plus 56 and that's what we would hit. So I just, you know, we have not finished ahead of Liverpool since 2016 and same thing for Chelsea. And even a draw this weekend would lock up finishing ahead of both of them. And it's just, it's crazy to me that it's been that long since we've actually competed with either of those clubs. Not to say that, you know, they aren't successful and they aren't having a great run, but um, I just think it, it really helps kind of put things in like how far this, the, the level has dropped for Arsenal or, or how far it had dropped and like really how, how crazy uh, this rebound has been. I I said not too long ago that I I was kind of like I was expecting maybe a run at third or run at fourth before mm-hmm. like an, an actual legitimate title run. I know we kind of made a run at fourth last season, but you know what I mean. Like you know we're pushing for third, second at the end of the season, not like the actual crown. So um, yeah, it's just once you once you sit and think about it that way, it really we we could. It's already been a really special season, and regardless of the outcome, like it's going to go down as one of the the best in a number of ways that, you know, Arsenal have seen in our lifetimes. Exactly. Right. And you, you kind of think through like so many of the, you think about the 38 match season era and this one is going to be up there. So not even just in the premier league, but like since they've switched to only playing 38 matches, like the numbers that this team are putting up yeah. are going to be easily the best um, or among the best that we've seen from Arsenal. And it's just, blowing past the expectations yeah because i think yeah you mentioned it like my baseline for what i wanted to see from arsenal this year was i I basically took what does a a typical third slash fourth place team do 
it's like, all right, I want to see Arsenal do that. You know, so even if you know, my expectations were like, let's fight for those spots. Um, and we've just absolutely blown past it. Mm-hmm. And it's just been a joy to like tune in to Arsenal every week again. I remember, you know, thinking back when we were in eighth place and yeah. it's like, it was kind of like, ugh, dread watching sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Or just hoping for, uh, hoping to avoid like that moment where everything absolutely falls apart. Like Burned Leno accidentally touches the ball with his hands outside of the, outside of his box. Just like something would always happen. Or, or there was that pattern where Arsenal would be like, we'd start really slow and give up a really cheap goal. And then they'd be like slowly, slowly, slowly building confidence, maybe get close to a goal, maybe even score a goal. And it's it's looking like it's totally going to be 2-1, 3-1 here shortly. And then like, you know, Burned gets a red card. Jacka gets a red card. Somebody gets sent off. Gabriel gets sent off. And just like, oh my God, this is like torture. So for them to have gotten to this point with three losses, by the way, um, one factoid that I just realized I didn't even put in the post, if Arsenal lost every game uh, the rest of the way, they still would have fewer losses than each of the last two seasons. Um, they would end up with 12. So if last, the last two seasons, we, we've lost 13 each. That's that's pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, it's just been it's been crazy. And the the 38 game era starts really 95-96, just for anybody who was wondering about that. Yep. So yeah, the real, real good. And I think it matches kind of what we've had this season. And I know there's been a bit of stuff kind of going online, you know, about, oh, have Arsenal been fortunate doing those kinds of things? Do we deserve to be here? And I think some of these numbers really do put into focus that this team isn't here on luck, right? We've certainly had luck. um, And I think that's something that, you know, people like to like think as a binary, like, have Arsenal been good or have they been lucky? I think it's both. Um, but this is not yeah. a team that he is here by a fluke that, you know, at the top of the table being able to do things. Right. Well, and I think, I think sometimes that, you know, like there, there's always like this push to discredit what's happening, but I, I you know, for me, I, you know, w- when I watch American tackle football, for instance, like I support the Minnesota Vikings um, and they just they just had a season where a lot, like almost all of the advanced metrics were like, this is very much like middle of the road team. <laughs> but they won they won the majority of their games and like won the won their division and got to the playoffs like thirteen and four record or something like that, which is really good in American football if you don't watch that. And they lost in the playoffs, but I mean, toward the end of the season, you're kind of looking at it and you're saying, well, yeah, I mean, they have been lucky, but guess what? They're, they won the division and they're going to the playoffs. So who cares? And ultimately I, I personally wasn't expecting them to win the Super Bowl, So it didn't bother me, but I, you know, there's, there's just that element of when people talk about, you know, this season Arsenal have, you know, over, like overperformed XG, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, but so does like every club who ever wins the league. So why, you know, go back and look at any league. They're always over performing something that's part of the equation that's part of the reason they're in first place yeah and i was having this conversation too where so it's you think about like the different threshold things that you're kind of measuring against so if teams are kind of like close in talent level it is usually the team that kind of goes a little bit hot that ends up winning you kind of think back to the the run-in last year for the top four i think arsenal and spurs were very close and it kind of took a little bit of good fortune for Spurs to be able to get over the hump, to be able to take that spot. It's probably going to be something similar down at the bottom of the table this year. 
all of those teams are very tightly bunched and it's going to be, you know, the teams that don't have things kind of go their way. It doesn't necessarily mean that those teams are worse than any of the others or anything like that's just kind of what happens in a sport with the high variability in low scoring of matches. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a team Mm -hmm. isn't deserving, right? I think Arsenal have proven over, you know, the 30 games that they've played this season that they very much deserve to be in their spot. But what can decide the difference between them and a very good Manchester City is that maybe we get a couple bounces and that is what makes the difference. I know like people always say that the table doesn't lie. Well, I think that the table does lie in the sense that it's not always like a pure reflection of pure talent, but I don't think we want it to be that way. We want to have some of these randomness and moments and have little things that kind of make a decision. You know, you think back to the Liverpool Manchester city fights, it's a, a long range shot from a center back that goes in and that makes the difference, or it's a, a goal line clearance that just doesn't let the ball go all the way over the line. And those are the things that decide it. It's not necessarily that, you know, Liverpool and Metro city were, you know, different on the talent level between the two teams. And that's what kind of decided the talent. It's, it's the little moments along the way that make it special, right? If Arsenal win the title, we're going to kind of look back at the ball going off of Unai Emer or sorry, uh, off of Emmy Martinez to see a, a goal score. It's going to be Reese Nelson's last minute winner. Like, yeah, Arsenal were the better team in those matches, but it's those moments that I think are going to make the difference. And those are the kind of bounces that you need mm-hmm. to get to win a title. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's just kind of, it, it just comes down to like, you know, there was another column today that, you know, Arsenal are back and so are the insufferable Arsenal fans that come along with it. And I just think it's it's just people who have who have made up their minds already about their experience of Arsenal fans, their experience of the club, like, this is this is a dislike of the club that goes back a long time. So yes, Arsenal, you know, it was Arsenal were bad for a while. They didn't make the Champions League for six seasons in a row, seven seasons in a row, whatever. And that was that was great for Arsenal haters. And if you know if the same thing happens to Spurs, like that'll be that'll be a golden era. We'll love the era of Spurs being, you know, fifth place at best. I guess maybe that's kind of every year. But anyway, it's it's just fun to like see clubs you don't like win or or not win, like just fail. So when they start winning, even if it's not fluky, um, you're still going to look for stuff. You're still going to look for like anything that can make you feel better. And I think that's just what it is. I think that's a a good spot to leave that one on. Um, We'll do a little housekeeping. And then I think I got some quick hits for you that I think we'll we'll kind of run through um, as we we wrap up. So this show is supported by our very much appreciated premium subscribers, where for just $5 a month, you'll get at least five additional articles. Um, You'll also get our gratitude. Um, This month, um, half of all of our revenue is going to support the, the Arsenal Foundation and the work that they're doing there to support a refugee camp in Jordan. Elliot from Arsenal Vision um, had a, a great trip out there to be able to see firsthand the work that is being done. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I know the, the goal there, we, we initially set it for 100,000 pounds. We raised it to 150, and it looks like we are going to pass that. Like So the support, so yeah, Arsenal fans may be insufferable but we are a, a very good community, I think, for being able to do good things. I think that's actually one of my favorite things um, about the people that I've met becoming an Arsenal fan. So um, everybody, you know, thank you for, for doing all those kinds of things. 
Um, yeah, so let's uh, get back here. So I got a, a couple of questions here for you. Jared Bowen, has he regressed? <laughs> yeah, he has. Uh, people, so people don't you know. know so, anybody uh, follows me knows. Yeah, no, I, if you remember in the summer, um, we were talking about, you know, why attackers. And I remember we, Arsenal were linked to Jared Bowen and, you know, he was in, he was making some appearances in the England team ahead of Saka and all this stuff. And I, you know, I just, I just put it out in the world that, uh, you know, I had been looking at him and I thought, I really thought that his performance from that season, which was going to be earning if Southampton or if, if West Ham were going to sell him, that was going to be on the strength of that performance. Right. I think it was 12 goals and 10 assists or something like that. Um, and I just, I was looking at it and I was like, geez, you know, this guy, this is, this seems like an anomaly to me. I don't think he's going to do it again. And he, ha- I mean, he hasn't obviously West Ham have not been as good as they were last season, but Jared Bowen is part of that. Uh, and I think every respected metric with maybe the exception of, I don't even know. I, I, there might not even be an exception has his performance rated lower this season than it, than it was last season. That's the, that's the definition. He's dribbled way worse. His finishing has been terrible. Um, and one thing that particularly bothered me about his performance last season was like, seriously, a, a ball to a shooter from Jared Bowen was like an automatic goal. And I was like, that's not, that's not going to keep up. That's not going to So yeah, I, I posted about that. Some We've had some West Ham cronies trying to get after me about it. But listen, guys, I, I know I'm right. I've watched. I've studied. Like, it is what it is. He's gotten he's, – he's not been as good as he was last season. Yeah, and I think that that matches my thoughts too, right? He's been okay, and it kind of – it's like – you kind of think through sometimes when a player has a career year. Um, is this a new – ceiling for him or is this something that's a, an anomaly and you think he might go back towards his previous you know expectations and and level of performance and I think you know I, I did raise my expectations for Jared Bowen a little bit and I think it it but I didn't raise it massively to the degree that I think some people did where they thought that you know maybe he could be uh, a superstar kind of thing in the making and you know it, it's not that surprising to see yeah. him take a step back no i mean because because for all intents and purposes like what he is doing this season i think that other statements that are also true along with jared bowen has regressed is jared bowen has also been one of the better players for west ham uh this season they have also just been very bad a number of their players have not been good at all the the setup everything just seems to not be working for them so yeah, naturally his his numbers will get a little worse because of that. But if you just look at it from like the things that you can pin down on an ind- individual level, I think that ultimately what you've ended up here with here is that he's basically performing a heck of a lot closer to how he did in twenty the twenty twenty one season, mm-hmm. which to me is is like the like picture perfect definition of regression going back to what he was before this crazy twenty two goal involvement season. All right. Chelsea have gone Potter out, Lampard in. Do you think there's actually a plan here? <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that I actually, I will, I'm going to give like, this is, this is not the popular take, but I will give them credit for going with the caretaker manager plan. Like, no, Frank, Frank Lampard is not a great manager and he's, 
you know, he's kind of, he's very memeable and mockable and everything like that. But I do think that them taking a step back and saying like, let's, let's like investigate this a little bit. Let's make it a little bit more about what this person is going to do with the project and not just, you know, bringing in the, the shiny new toy type of guy. I give them credit for that. I think that there's maybe there's more of a plan to the managerial chase than, than I was anticipating. You know, I still do hope they hire Julian Nagelsmann just because I want to see them have to pay Bayern Munich like 30 million pounds to get him out of his contract because just for the, for the laws basically. But, you know, I guess we'll see what they do. Yeah. I mean, I'm still wondering if there's really a plan here. Cause you think about when they fired Potter, like, why did they do it after that particular match kind of a thing? Like they're, they're just coming back from an international break. Like, wouldn't that have made at least some sense to, you know, like, all right, this is a, a clean break opportunity. You know, you could get your, you know, caretaker right. in, give them a, a week with the guys, be able to kind of have the news be rather than it feeling like a, a decision that was made kind of on the whim. Like if he's like, what particular, I think, yeah, is like what saw from that game, I think it was the, the Aston Villa game, right, that they ended up losing, that they saw yeah. that made them change and they their minds. they still lost two now. Yeah, it was the Unai Emery special for that one. It's like, what is the yeah. thinking behind making the choice there? What new evidence did you see behind, or yeah. did it just become untenable that, you know, he'd lost so much? Like, I think that's some of the thing that you kind of think back to Arsenal and their Mikel Arteta situation, it's like they had moments like that, but I, I, I don't think there was ever a particular moment where it's like that joined and made it think, I can't do it again. Like there wasn't evidence that pointed it. So to me, like that kind of points to a bad process probably at Chelsea. You know, they, they came in, made a ton of signings in January. That squad is bloated. Uh, there's reporting out of the athletic that, you know, people are, you know, changing in the hallways because that squad is just so big and they don't really have the space for being able to do it. Um, they're trying to pivot to a younger team. Oh, they're going to be building for the future. They're going to be able to do that. Graham Potter is a guy that you think about, oh, he needed a preseason to be able to implement his system, to be able to get that going. And it's like, was that actually true? Did you actually think that this is what you wanted to do? And it, it really kind of makes me think that Todd Bowley and Clear Lake don't really know what they're doing. It makes me drop the confidence in them in the yeah. future to, to make good, smart, sound decisions. I do think, I do think Scott, that w- the way you have framed it is actually, I'll give you a lot of, I give you a lot of kudos for that because I, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that is very true. I was thinking about it purely in terms of like hiring a new manager, but realistically, what can they expect out of the remaining 10 games that they've got? Or is it nine now? Who cares? Well, they got the Champions and, League and still basically like too. So like they still have that to play for where there's a, yeah. a big prize for them there. So it's like, you kind of see like maybe like that's where the, but it's like, is Frank Lampard like a cup specialist that you think is going to win you the Champions League? Right. And that's, and that's kind of the, the struggle with it is if, I mean, to me, like trying to look at it from the most detached lens possible, was their loss to Aston Villa, like some kind of new low um, to this season? You know, sometimes that's the reason that somebody gets sacked because it's just like, like embarrassing, like, come on, this is ridiculous. And I, I don't really think that is true about what happened <laughs> In that game, I mean, they lost at home against the 20th place club in the league. That was a month ago. 
and they've got and they've like you said they've got Real Madrid and like if you're if you're a Chelsea fan or or somebody on the board or whatever because it's there's a lot of money involved like your one great hope for this season is to I mean maybe to charge back into seventh place but ultimately it's the Champions League like if you can if you can stun Real Madrid and you know they've got they've still got talented players mm-hmm. all over but it's it's going to be a ton of work like so you should be giving that manager as much time as possible to get their ideas in line for that. And, and I guess, I guess when you look at it that way, um, bringing Lampard in could be like a terrible decision, right? Yeah, I I agree. Right. It's, I have no idea. Like maybe it's, you get some kudos from the fans because he's a club legend and maybe that helps buy some time for being able to see it. But I don't know, like if, if your idea is that we wanted to move on from Potter at the end of the year and, you know, get a new manager in, like that choice was still there in May, right. You know, kind of let him see through the thing yeah. and, you know, maybe you've made that choice there, but I don't know that that's, I guess maybe that's why I'm not a, you know, a fancy hedge fund guy because I, I don't make those kinds of quick decisions. Cause your parents weren't rich enough. <laughs> I went to just a regular state school instead of a, a fancy <laughs> Ivy league school. All right. Brendan Rogers is out at Leicester. Does anybody want that yeah. job right now? So I I posted, and I, I think you and I have both independently posted this, Scott. Maybe even without being aware of each other. I think I think that this is the least attractive job opening in the Premier League. I really do, for for a number of reasons. So first of all, why did they wait so long to sack mm-hmm. Brendan Rodgers? This club's position in the league has been has been so consistent. They have been at the bottom for such a long time. And this is Leicester. Like, this is the club that was supposed to be taking a top six spot from Arsenal uh, on a perennial basis, okay? And then you look at you look at the the team sheet, and you've got James Madison, and you've got Yuri Tielemans, um, and you've got guys like um, like Fofana, or not Fofana, um, the other midfielder, Ndidi, and like Kalechi Iheanacho, and Jamie Vardy, like this... Like, no, this isn't an amazingly built squad, but this squad is better than 19. So why did they wait so long? But then the other thing is they are, they're kind of stuck in this relegation fight. They, I thought they might beat Villa. I thought maybe they were a little bit better than Villa in that game on the weekend until towards the end. And then, and then it just kind of fell apart. But so if I, so you've got like the looming, relegation threat, which is pretty legitimate because they and Southampton are, I think are the only ones who aren't really in that tightly bunched group on points. The other problem for me with the Lester job. So let's say that they stay up and you take that job. Uh, you just had a board that just absolutely like screwed Brendan Rogers for this season. They let Fofana go. They replaced him with Woot phase. They spent like no money in the transfer market, despite being on the verge of doing something special a season ago. Tielemans is gone. He's he's not coming back. I really don't think he's coming back. James Madison is a great question, and I would not be surprised at all if he's gone. You get other guys like maybe Harvey Barnes will want to leave. I wouldn't be surprised if like if some of the younger guys like maybe James Justin wants to go. Um, so I just think I just think it's going to be a mess, especially if the board isn't going to spend. And I would not want to take that job. No, they seem like they have gone in quite the the spiral since the the owner um, passed away um, in the the helicopter accident. Like it just it feels like the the team just isn't that now the it was it was you know kind of the the fun thing that that guy wanted to do is his passion. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the siblings and the, I think it's the wife that took over. They just don't have that same, I guess, you know, verve for running a Premier League team. And it really kind of feels that way. Like you think back, like this is kind of the opposite of the Chelsea thing. Like they just kept sticking with Potter and, or sorry, with, with Brendan Rodgers. And it, it basically since the beginning of this year, like this team has not looked good. I think the evidence was there probably like three months ago that it didn't feel like that Brendan Rodgers was going to be able to turn this around. That's kind of like Brendan Rodgers MO is yeah. that, he can, once he finds a system, he can, you know, really make it work well, but it can take him a long time of not being able to react and figure out something that does work. And it just feels like he could not get it to go. It feels like that everybody was kind of checked out. Like, you know, like you just mentioned, like they have a lot of talent still on this team that should be a lot better. Like this team should be right? Like you think about Liverpool and Chelsea being having down years, like they should have been the team that felt positioned to take that spot from them rather than being in 19th yeah. place right now and a very deserved 19th place. I, I, yeah. I just don't see mm-hmm. any team, any manager wanting to come in. People are trying to say, Oh, Potter is going to go there. And it's like, if you're Potter, like I, I would stay away from this job because this one feels like it's got curse all over it where, yeah, like there's a real good chance that yeah. you go down with this team just because, yeah, maybe it's talented, but like you are in the bad spot of trying to win points for, you know, trying to get out of safety. You're not even in that 18th spot um, where you're going to have to overtake a bunch of teams to try to get out of this with a team that maybe isn't super motivated, right? Everybody's kind of looking for their next job, like how to get out of here. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think anybody wants Lester. That may be a spot in the summer, um, but again, it depends on you know how the you know the owners and everything kind of feel and project going forward. Yeah, I mean that's I just I think that's just such an overlooked piece of the puzzle by some people is what is it like to work with these people? We've seen so many examples of managers just not getting supported, and it's not like it, it's it's always such a like a hot button issue where when people feel like their manager is failing, it's because they're not getting support from the board not getting the spending that they may be expected. You know, Antonio Conte loves to talk about that, but sometimes it's just not true. And then in other times it's like, it's very true. Um, what, what Lester did to Brendan Rogers this summer, like look at Sevilla and what they did against, or what they did with Yulin Lopetegui. It's the same thing. Like there's no way this guy was going to do a good job. And Sevilla's, you know, they're, they're in like relegation. They're in a relegation fight too. It's the same thing. That's what it looks like when you don't get any support. All right, so we're we're coming here to the end, but I got one final question here. Who, who's gonna pick or who's gonna take up the hot take here of picking up the Spurs manager job? Have you got a you got a feeling for who might come into the void that's left by Antonio Conte? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's all that bad of a job. I don't, as much as as much as I'm supposed to think that. So my my take has been that I think it's going to be either. One of one of these thing one of these three things will be true. It's either going to be Maurizio po- Pochettino, mm-hmm. or it's going to be some someone English, or it's going to be somebody who is already managing a side in the Premier League. That's that's my prediction. I know that they've been linked to Nagelsmann. I know some people are worried he's going to go there. I don't think he's going to go there. 
um, he just had such a terrible experience dealing with a, a board who couldn't take his his personality and with egos and everything like that. I don't think Daniel Levy's any better in that situation. And then you and then you uh, factor in what's going on with Fabio Paratici. It's it's a mess, right? They need a new they need a new director of football and they need a new manager. So those that's my theory. I could see them chasing Marco Silva, try to get him away from Fulham. I think he's done a great job. Uh, I could see them trying to chase Vincent Company, even though he's getting – he's not English or in the Premier League right now, but he's he's done, like, a very good job at Burnley. Yeah, he's, he's like, been honorary some – People think maybe, British. like, Michael – Right, an honorary Premier League because he's as good as there next season. But there's been some talk about Michael Carrick, maybe. I could see that one. You know, one another one that I would personally take a look at – well, I know I know some people have have said Graham Potter there too, um, maybe. Um, but the uh, the other one that I would look at if I were Spurs would be Thomas Frank from Brentford. I just think that that's a situation kind of like 2000, uh, 2020 Arsenal, where the culture is just really not in a good place right now. Yeah, they can keep like stuttering along to fifth and fourth and occasionally third, um, but like Harry Kane might be gone. Conte, predictably enough, left behind a mess. I think that they need somebody who can really like do a, a cultural surgery with that with that organization. And and I look at what Thomas Frank has done at Brentford. He got them promoted for the first time in like 30 years. And not only that, like they their first campaign was good. And this season they are they're legitimately pushing for Europe. I think he's just done an incredible job. So I would I would look at him and I think I think he's also kind of a good match for the personnel, by the way. Yeah. And I don't know. I said this when I was on the podcast with Mike, that it feels very analogous to Arsenal when we were at the end of our run where Alexis and Ozil and Ramsey were all coming to the ends of their contract. So like you're kind of in a weird win now phase where it's like your, your talented guys are probably at the ends of their really peak years. And I think that's kind of where they're at with Harry Kane. Um, Sun might be already down that slope of a bit of the the regression towards uh, the age curve. And it's like, do you want to keep trying to do something with that? Or are you going to pivot to rebuilding and trying to build a new young core? And I don't know, Arsenal went with, uh, we are going to try a lot of short-term win-now things. And that really kind of put Arsenal in a bad situation for, what, five, six years where we had so many of those decisions yeah. you know, not quite work out. And I feel like that could be the situation that Spurs end up in. And I think you know, whatever choice of manager they pick here could be a big you know, deciding factor. They've gone for the win now, guys, with Mourinho, with Conte. They Are have. they going to do that again? Like, right? Because it's like, you know, Brendan Rodgers is there. Brendan Rodgers is kind of a, a win now guy. He's got that you know, being able to come in and turn teams around, or are you going to go with a more of a project guy? Um, and then maybe that is the, we need to move on from Kane choice. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see which way they lean between the two kind of options, or do they try to go with like a middle ground of supporting Kane, but trying to get a, a young thing and try to do both at the same time, but without the money to be able to try to do both effectively, I think. Yeah, I think, I you know, they've got to, look like across the neighborhood a little bit on this. I Kane, Son, obviously, Hugo Lloris, like these guys, these guys are are dusted. They're they're done. Um we're close to it. Perisic is not gonna really factor in much in the future either. 
But I mean, you look into the midfield and you've got Skip and you've got Hoiberg and you've got Bentoncourt. It's not it's not a terribly like done and dusted midfield or anything like that. Kulisevsky is obviously a very good piece. Richarlison is like, yeah, it was a bad purchase, but he's young. He's probably going to do better a lot better next year than zero goals yeah. on April 7th. Romero, yeah, he's a dingus, but you know he's still he's still one of the better young center backs in the world. Pedro Porro, um, they've got Destiny Udogie coming in from Udinese, who's a, just a really really fascinating like wing back type of left back. And they've still got Jed Spence, so there there are pieces there. I just really think that I, if I were running the show, and I'm obviously not, and who knows what Daniel Levy will do, I would just look for somebody who's got a track record of more from less, and I would work with that because. Yeah, maybe they sell Harry Kane for $100 million, but do you expect them to like turn around and buy another superstar? Um, I don't know that I do. So we'll see. All right. Uh, the last that's, one. It's kind of parallel for me to uh, – oh, well, sorry, Scott. We have a delay oh, oh. on this, so Scott didn't know I was still talking. Oh, no, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a tough one here where the internet has kind of let me down a bit, but I think we've, we've worked through it. Um, I was just going to say the last question I kind of had here for you is, is, are we going to have a St. Totterings ham day on Easter? Or do you, do you have a feeling that, you know, or do you not want to jinx it, you know, talking about it? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, Brighton are central to our happiness here for the rest of the season because they they are the club who could give us the St. Totteringham's Day first time in seven years this weekend. I, you know, I would not be stunned at all to see them win at Tottenham. That Then if, if that happens, it would require an Arsenal win at Anfield. So... I'm going to say that there's like a 50-50 chance of it this weekend. And if it doesn't happen this weekend, I think it probably does happen the, the following weekend. Um, Spurs play Bournemouth, but Arsenal, um, I think, can get the West Ham points. So, But after that, Brighton are also standing in Manchester United's way in the FA Cup semifinal. So, um, you know, City are going to win. Obviously, they're going to be in the final. Who knows if they even try in the final, though. So let's beat Brett. Let's beat Man United in the semis. And then Brighton do still have a yet to be scheduled game at the Amex against Manchester City. So uh, they they are the club that we should all be like hoping for good things for, in my opinion. And not to mention, they could also be a club that keeps Spurs out of, out of the top four. So go Brighton. We're all Seagulls. Yeah. And we, we love the Seagulls. Um, I think that's a, a good spot to end it. You know, thank you, Adam. This has been a, a very enjoyable episode. Good stuff. Yeah, we just we just you know nothing but bangers here from the Canon Stats podcast. I think. Yeah, and if you if you enjoyed, you know, do the the like reviews, do all those kinds of things on wherever you listen. Um, if you want to stay up to date with Canon Stats, get all the latest content. You can follow us on Twitter. Although uh, Elon Musk is you know doing some weird stuff with Substack links, so you can always you know subscribe on Substack and think doing those kinds of things. Um, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you on the next one. Cheers, y'all.